Barcelona has a historic area that's you know, very old, very narrow streets, small little plazas. And we were in this one little plaza that had a church and then a couple of buildings that were very bland if you were there when none of them were open. But when they open, they open the doors so that almost the whole base of the building is alive. But when they're shut, it looks like the buildings are empty. And these are just two standalone buildings and then two buildings on the side. But then everything changes. They put furniture out and there's some bollards. The church entranceway is busy. And so there's this kind of, you come into this and you go, ha-ha, because it has that feeling that you want to just be there and hang out, hanging out. Wanting to hang out is a big, big deal. Welcome. I'm Romy Neme, and this is The Third Person, a podcast where we take a step back and explore what could be if only the way that things currently are didn't have such a hold over our imaginations. You just heard Fred Kent, who founded the Project for Public Spaces 40 years ago. He was part of the movement with Margaret Mead, Jane Jacobs, and William H. White, folks who really understood what it meant to create a livable city by using nothing more than their acute powers of observation and their interest in human beings, something that was minimized back then during the days of the logic of the machine age that threatened to get rid of street life. He's completed hundreds of placemaking projects all over the world and continues to advocate for principles that were radical at the time and still to this day are radical in their simplicity and the ways in which they transform public life. We go into a number of interesting questions from what makes places special and how that might give us a different way into the climate change conversation. Here's our conversation following Fred's Barcelona anecdote. Spaces feel like they just have something and I don't have the right lexicon or yeah. the right way to look at it to be able to identify what those qualities are that tend to bring people out. When you step into a space for the first time, and we'll get into you know, what is the work of placemaking. How do you get a sense, a proper sense of a place and what its potential is for people? Your whole body identifies every place you are going into in various ways. And you can, if you watch yourself and you see how you begin to react, whether you're looking straight forward or you're starting to look around, you tend to slow down a little bit. You know, you're more interested in what's going on around you. And it all depends on the uses that are there and the people that are there. You know, if you're in a corporate area, you don't look at anyone. It's very sterile and, and controlling. But when you go into these more open opportunity spaces, you start connecting with people. And your body relaxes, your breathing relaxes, and you start becoming part of a place rather than just in a place. So tell me a little bit more about the I don't know if you call it an art of placemaking or the work of placemaking or what does that, because I think people are less familiar yeah. with that term, right? Yeah, when we well, talk about urban studies, yeah. everybody knows about urban yeah. planning, everybody yeah. knows about architecture. Placemaking is about watching, listening, talking with people, trying experiments. They're the experts. We're just a facilitator. We've been in, you know, three quarters of a million images and cities all over the world, so you know where the best is, you know where the worst is, and so you can kind of conjure up, as they talk, ideas of what they might look at visually, because when we're telling them something, they don't see it, but when we show them something, they see it. 
So the whole idea is to set it up for the kind of places that they are thinking about they'd like to be in or close to what they might have. And they can come up with ideas of what they'd like to do in that place. So then placemaking is then experimenting with those activities. So you can grow a place quickly in two to three years around their aspirations. And we don't know, we have this phrase that you can't know what you're going to end up with. And if you think you have to, you're wrong. Because people grow into the space and then the space grows with them. So that's what placement is. It is really simple. It's because we, um, that's who we are. We, we create place. It's every human being on this planet desires a place to be in. And they want it to be whole and fulfilling. There's, every person is the same. You know, they just have a different background or a different context, and they work, they live and work in that context. But they will, they will do something that reflects their values if they're given the chance. So you set up this process, which in the world today everything is defined by government and uh, the disciplines, and we're taking it away from them, and we're creating, with these people, are creating the places they want to be in. And then it makes these places far more inclusive, far more equitable, far more their own uh, vision. And you really, you can't lose. And, and a lot of people are doing it already. It's not like it's, this is a revolution. But it is a counter, and we can't take credit. We don't accept awards. Why would we accept an award when the community is the one that's doing it? And that idea of developing a um, capability within people has its roots in a certain kind of social discipline that I think is where the departure point from yeah. architecture and urban yeah. studies are. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the, the social theories or underpinnings or where that world emanates from? <laughs> That's very hard uh, because, uh, you know, I went to school, I went to graduate school, <laughs> but I studied with people like Margaret Mead and, and Jane Jacobs was a was a factor, and those were more intuitive people. They weren't academics. As soon as I hear this sort of language of an academic, I start to say, oh, what is going on here? I'm not quite sure what I should be saying, or, you know, then I have to go into my academic background, which I lost a long time ago. It's really community organizing. It's 100% community organizing. So I'm going to remove the discipline then. Yes. I was going to ask you about maybe some anecdotes or from, from those mentors or people that you worked with that were more intuitive. Were there sort of lessons or things that you grasped from the way they spoke to people or from um, any of the projects that maybe you were involved in back then? Well, there are all these wonderful quotes from these people. And I worked with this man, William White, uh, who wrote The Organization Man and The Last Landscape, and then The Social Life of Small Urban Spaces. So he had wonderful quotes like, um, you know, you can see a lot just by observing, which is, yes, right. And so the idea of going into a place and just sitting and observing gives you all kinds of information. One of the things that we did to try and find out how come this rather interesting uh, difference between perception and fact was the daily buildup of table use. And here in this animated chart, you will see the black dots are for men, the red for women. Notice, by the way, uh, the tendency of men to take the front row and the women the rear. Now, as the day goes on, the patterns remain quite consistent. 
And so they do day after day. But this Olympian perspective can be rather misleading. What we see looking down is regularity. Now this is the truth, but it's only a partial one. Get down to eye level, the way people see the place, and you don't see regularity. Instead, you see sort of an amiable miscellany. People are placed this way and that. Now you can get data. I mean, we, were, we worked on Bryant Park and came up with a plan for redoing Bryant Park, and we did all this data collection. I mean, we went down into the kind of drugs that people were dealing in. And there weren't just a few people dealing, there were nine groups of people dealing in drugs in that park. So, you know, and what did that do to help us? It really didn't do much because in the end, all we had to do was replace uh, the drug dealing with other kinds of drugs like coffee and ice cream. So, because that's, then you'd bring all, all, all kinds of people in. So it wasn't hard to come up with a solution because they were in the places where people were going and they wanted to buy drugs. And so the amount of data collection was really kind of, it was just interesting and we can show it, but what did we learn from it? You know, we just learned that over time, you just uh, create other kinds of uses that people want to be doing and, and that opens up all kinds of doors. So, you know, and people like Margaret Mead, who's a professor of mine uh, at Columbia, you know, she wasn't an academic. She was just a, put $10 in your pocket and walk through Harlem and, and look and see what you see. But she was very insightful. You know, it's, the ins it's being insightful. And that's what a lot of these people in the 70s who were part of, a lot of them were out at Berkeley, who were really strong thinkers about common ideas. I organized Earth Day in 1970 in New York City, and that's where I got this. And I also organized the Street Academy for high school dropouts called Academy for Black and Latin Education, ABLE, up in the Upper West Side. And so I got into this, these groups of people like Margaret Mead and Jane Jacobs and those people uh, at a pretty young age. And I got talking to a friend of, who was, ran a, an anthropological group called the Wintergrand Foundation for Anthropological Research. And she said, don't hire a graduate anthropologist hire an undergraduate because they will have all kinds of ideas and excitement about what they're doing but once they get into the discipline they have to deliver what the discipline wants you realize how how common sense it is and and how rich people are wherever you go so this morning i coming on the subway I, there was this woman who had this folding chair and she unfolded it, sat down, and uh, I went over and talked to her, and I said, boy, this is really terrific what you've done, and do you do this all the time? And she says, yeah, I do this all the time. I bring my own chair because there's no seating on the subway platforms, you know, so, uh, and the reason there's no seating on the subway platforms is just because they're afraid of who will sit on them. If we realize who needs to sit on them and make the subway system more comfortable, more people will use it and it will be safer. So people are going in the wrong direction. And uh, she picked, out, picked up her chair when the subway came and folded it up and said, this is also a cane. Little things like that, you know, are just clues to the nature that we've, we've arrived in that just doesn't allow people to connect. People connecting is the most basic form of living. If you don't have those, that opportunity, 
you get isolated and, I mean, I hate to say this, but you get not only isolated, but then you get hostile to the rest of the world. So the, the idea of that, that local gathering place, or lots of them, is, is absolutely critical to public life and social life and healthy life and all the other things that you get from being in places that you thrive in. So those are the types of common ideas yeah. that you talk about that yeah. were really taking root yeah. back then, right? A bench. Just a bench. Just think about that. That's a radical idea. And then imagine if the bench is actually comfortable. <laughs> and then imagine if the bench, you could actually sit with four people and face each other. That's almost impossible. Imagine if the bench is nine feet long. You can get three groups of people sitting there. So if it's just four feet long, maybe one person sits there, and the next person is afraid to sit there because they'll be too close to the... So you, you get all this dynamic that opens up the possibility of communicating. There's one really good bench that people can sit around. There's actually, we have one picture of where there are 18 people sitting on the bench. And a bench is uh, where you sit needs to be two backsides deep. So a person can sit on the inside or on the outside. And that changes everything because the people who are sitting there are now listening to what the other people are saying with a chance of potentially connecting with them. You know, so their antennas are open, they're open for something. And to me, the most uh, important word that I think of is uh, serendipity. And serendipity is no accident. Absolutely not. But people go to places where they feel comfortable, where in the back of their mind they might say, well, maybe I'll see her or him or I'll do something. Sometimes it's, that's what they want to do. They just go and wait till someone comes along. But it's that serendipity that creates these connections. Yeah, it's almost that third object is it just yeah. as a reason right. to engage, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, things like water. Uh, but boy, you can design something that will never engage anyone very easily. You know, especially uh, high-rise ar architecture has no sense of humanity at the ground level. And if you take architecture and you say, forget about the architecture, and you think about a building as no longer a building, but part of the public spaces. So if you take a library and you say, uh, we're not going to build a library, we're going to build a place where there will be library functions in it, but we may have a playground, maybe we may have a market, and the whole thing will be fluid, and you begin to move from one to the other, and you'll end up being in that library or that playground and doing all these other things. But we put everything into a silo, like parks should no longer, we don't even use the word park anymore, because a park has a connotation of green and open space, uh, but it doesn't have a connotation of gathering and multiple uses. So if a park has a market in it, a neighborhood market, where people come on Wednesday night and sell what they make or what they grow, you know, and you do something else on another day, you're beginning to make the place a dynamic place that you now are part of. There's a wonderful one in, in Toronto where the park was, uh, was in a kind of a rough neighborhood. And uh, this woman who was pregnant and she was, didn't, she had a choice and there were these, quote, tufts in the park sort of dominating and taking it over. And she, she had this choice between being scared or bored. And she chose scared. So she went into the park, and it's the long story short, she worked with the tufts, that's her, her, her words, 
and they built a Portuguese bread oven to bake bread. And that was the, the tipping point. And then all these other things happened in there that you, none of which would be park-like functions. They actually, the community built a kitchen that was more of a setting for bringing food out and tables and things that they built. It wasn't under any parks department in Toronto. So it's far better used than most of the parks that we get. So one of the reasons I was uh, really excited to talk to you was, I think you mentioned in a video that you had a friend who was an economics professor at Harvard, and you guys were talking about how do we reconfigure what we do, what might be the right metric, right, which is where a lot of us fall into these traps. And he'd mentioned something like bump rates right. and <laughs> increasing bump rates, which in my head are like these, these happy collisions. Yeah, they are, for sure. You know, what does happy collisions or bump, increasing the bump rate, what does that look like for you? Are there any of these places that do that successfully? Well, uh, this is, we actually did this project at Harvard uh, where there's this plaza that was basically over a, a, a road that connected the campuses uh, of Harvard, various academic uh, institutions, and there was nothing going on there. It was just a weeds and grass. So we created a destination. We had food trucks, we had games, we had big markets. We, we put in all this movable seating. We created a whole program of, of different places that people could do things, not knowing what would, whether it would work or not, because, it, because just having this place becoming available in lots of different ways opened up for all kinds of people to come in and use it. That was critical. And as more and more people came in to use it, more and more people would come. And that's where the professor talked about bump rates, because there were so many things you do there that you had to come through there. And you would look around, and you'd try to you'd see someone you know, and you would stop and talk. So there were all these people standing and talking all over the place. And it changed the whole dynamic, literally, of the Harvard campus, because there are really very few gathering places. And when you think of a student who goes to Harvard, the pressure that they're on under because of the kind of prestige of the place is really tough for people. So we even had a dog in there, a petting dog, which is what they wanted. We didn't know there were going to be those things. And that's what came up. You talk a lot about improvisation as being part of what you do. Can you um, just tell me a little bit more? Again, improvisation sounds like you don't do anything, people show up and then people improvise, and that's not quite what improvisation is. What is, is improvisation? Uh, improvisation is where you really become engaged in that place and you become creative about what to do in that place. You're not tied to the fact that you have to have a designer do it, but all these things, elements you put in, are designed elements. So it's not like you're getting rid of the designer. You're actually creating more design, but you're very sensitive to the, the way these designs function. It has to be uh, something that people will use. And then you take it out if it's not. You just put something else in. So you don't have, you're not stuck with solutions. I mean, like those benches at Harvard are going to be there for 20 years. Non-functional benches are going to be there for 20 years. And, you know, you, because they're art, you can't take them out. But the art of place, you know, is the kind of improvisation that can happen over time that, you know, just keeps changing. I mean, thing is so static as to think that that an architect can design something. We're called the Department of Corrections. I'm wondering if you think that um, does tension 
play any part in place and how these dynamics unfold in a positive sense. I'm, I'm interested in these counterintuitive type um, elements. For example, the fact that if we have more streets, we get more cars and not less, right? We get more congestion. Um, there's this paradoxical element to crowds where people are afraid of strangers, so to speak, but then feel most comfortable in dense crowds, right? It starts to feel like a hug somehow. Yeah, yeah, and sure. so and so what do you think of, of tension and and is can that be introduced in, in interesting ways? I remember being climbing a mountain once and this uh, three other people came along the trail and uh, and I thought, well maybe this is a little too dense, you know, and then you go the next day in Seattle where there's a market and you're around a thousand people and everyone is engaged and you know you can look at them and you see what they're up to you know there's this you're, you're a voyeur and they're voyeurs and the whole place is a voyeur heaven and it's that that is their tension uh, it's excitement I think and so when you work do you work with um, cities who are your sort of partners in these projects I'm giving a talk in a few weeks to uh, Keep America Beautiful, which will be very interesting because they're into litter and things like that. But the theme this year for their big conference is placemaking. So that opens up a whole door for placemaking because, you know, getting out of just, I mean, people put litter down because they don't like where they are. We did a whole day in the life of a, a wastebasket as a study, which was really fascinating. So you move people into caring and owning, then you get far less problems. You also get less problems with security. Yeah, I was thinking about this like fundamental right to movement. Yeah. And it, it has many different contexts depending on um, when in history we're talking about, right? Yeah. In certain times, it's, it's pretty basic things that we're restraining movement yeah. is essentially yeah. slavery, right? Yeah. Uh, so we've gone through these yeah. different phases of movement sort of emancipation and yeah. and um, where do you think we are now with that? Uh, it's a different context. You've talked I about what it looks like in oppressive regimes. I think we're really in a good place uh, now. I think it's it's on its, uh, you can't stop it. That's, that's what's going on. And the exciting thing is that every, every place is just taken on these, every city we go to, you meet these really dynamic people and see these dynamic changes that are going on. You can't do everything the way you used to. It's opened up phenomenal changes. And you're just going to see that increase. And that's why we have these 2,500 people who have signed up as zealous nuts. <laughs> that's their criteria. A zealous nut is someone who doesn't know what they can't do. So, and they're all over the world. And we get them signing up every day. And so that's why we're doing this kind of global program is to sort of support that. But then the big obstacles are government, the disciplines. They're the obstacles. If you don't do it my way or the highway, you know, so you've got to have a very powerful change. And we come in and we're very strong because we can show the results, very, how, how things have happened all around the world. And so we're, uh, we're, we're catalysts and uh, provocateurs. And so when, you, when we first talked about Barcelona, you talked about this place kind of opening up. Yeah. Um, it looked like it was sleeping, and all of a sudden yeah. it opened and attracted people in. And I wasn't aware that that was part of the zoning laws at some point that, um, what was it again, the incentive to create and height, you had to sort of offer up a plaza that yeah. was open to people. 
what could governments do better in terms of incentives? Like what have you been maybe lobbying for or urging governments to do in terms of um, provisions that would help people build better, more hospitable yeah. spaces? Well, one of the things we're doing with this, this big network is we're offering these campaigns to do a placemaking campaign. And the way you start is, we, we have a, a map of a city, say, and uh, say it's a small city, and you give people red, green, and yellow dots. So a red dot is for a bad place, green dot is for a good one, and a yellow is for one that has a big opportunity. So 50, 100 people put dots on the plan, and then you begin to see these clusters, and then you pick out two places that you can go work on the next week, and you do what we call lighter, quicker, cheaper. So we do an activations in those, and then three or four or five months later, you come back and you start picking a bigger space, and you do a much bigger one, and you have more conversations with people. So you can accelerate the impact that placemaking can have over a very short period of time. We did that in downtown Detroit, and that was probably our most successful project, because this guy, Dan Gilbert, who, who owns uh, Quicken Loans, he did all these things. Everything was about lighter, quicker, cheaper. He just took it on, and, and, and their metric for this was visual. If it looked good, they went on to the next place. They didn't do any data gathering. Yeah, is the X kind of like what a TEDx, up. yeah, like yeah. getting these um, yeah. more ownership in different yeah. places to accelerate the movement? So that you're actually scaling everything up and you're bringing, building movements because uh, Detroit was a movement. I mean, they fundamentally changed the downtown and the neighborhoods. I mean, if you look 10 years ago and what it is today, it's a different city. And so that was phenomenal. And it's really placemaking, not just by us, but what other people have done. Even recently, there was a, a grant that, that we got to work on uh, cultural institutions and sort of open them up because, you know, a cultural institution is a building is in jail. A cultural institution that is out in the public spaces and going on is you know, part of the city. So that's, that's, those are big changes. The libraries are the best thing because a library can change so easily and so quickly because it's a place where people need information. They need resources. So you expand the idea of resources to activities and you start to open up the door for all kinds of things. So then it become these multi-use places which are the ones that are really work. When you start narrowing things down to the one use, you're gonna get marginal responses. And when you open it up, you're gonna blow people away. So we call it architecture in place. How do you move away from just buildings as objects to buildings as places, or streets as objects to buildings, streets as places. So this is a really, really big idea. And the impact that it can have on climate, sustainability, and resilience are all outcomes that placemaking delivers. Tell me more about that. So Earth Day back in 1970, right. placemaking movement yeah. over the last 40 years, how do those ideas tie well, into something? I organized Earth Day in, in New York I, and I or, had organized a street academy before that. So, and I was just this dumb kid from Massachusetts. I, I really was, I promise you. And, uh, but I, so I didn't know what I couldn't do. So I did it. But then I stayed on the human side of environment or ecology. And, and that's how I got with Margaret Mead and, and Jane Jacobs and all these amazing people. 
and they were sort of the foundation of what I think is the placemaking movement. And I'm on a foundation board that's an environmental foundation, and I could never get them to even think of anything beyond climate change, legal issues, science, and uh, collectively, this idea of place and placemaking is really the foundation for a climate-friendly planet. And is the connection that, as you talked about, loitering, the sense of now seeing the beauty in place and wanting to care for it together yeah. and that sense of responsibility for, yeah. is that sort of the connection between the environment and the yeah, place? For sure, yeah. I mean, we're, I mean it's, everything is connected and beautifully connected if you can open up the possibilities. So it's really just opening the door for these things to happen. In terms of New York, what are some of your favorite places? Well, New York is one of the hardest cities to work in. It's the most professionally top-down city that we know. Uh, the politics are very hard. Uh, a lot of the developers are in charge and own uh, the politicians uh, in subtle ways and outright ways. So uh, it's the disciplines that control uh, the development of the city. And you're getting what you're getting here is is not what is needed for the most part. Brooklyn Bridge Park is one, Astor Place is another. I mean, just imagine the High Line being as big and active on the ground as it is up in the air, and the diversity of uses that you have both, it could have been marvelous. It's not a place that people in the community use, it's a, more of a tourist place, so we, they lost that opportunity. So maybe some more, um, less touristy, but more of your, like, where do you go to watch people well, in New York? Well, every community needs a, a square, you know, you, you take an intersection and you reduce the capacity and you create squares at intersections, so each of the corners is busy. You take a park and you, you multi-use it. You take a, a playground. We live across the street from a playground in Brooklyn, and you make it more and more multi-use. And the library inside is part of a library function for the community, the theater is another, so that these facilities become multi-use and neighborhood-based. So it's not hard to imagine, and, and you take tra traffic out. I mean, you just literally make it, instead of mobility for the city, you make it accessibility for neighborhoods and communities. It changes the whole dynamic. So no longer are you looking for cars to go through, you're looking for people to come to your community and to your neighborhood. That's a paradigm shift. Yeah, it's completely, completely different. Completely different, right. Different. Um, so, mindset. But yeah. you have all these people who are into mobility. We've got to have more and better mobility. We've got to get more transit as part of the mobility factor. and. Uh, you know, and, and we'll bring in uh, more bike lanes because uh, we can, you know, we'll create these exclusive bike lanes. Uh, and uh, But then it just takes out all of the opportunities. So what you do is more shared space where bikes and pedestrians are shared with cars at intersections. You bring the speeds down to 15, 12 miles an hour in places, and you now have a place that people can go to. So you're not denying the bike you're actually promoting the bike, but in a more community-friendly environment. Yeah, I like That's that. That's the shift. I like that shared spaces philosophy. Yeah. I yeah. forgot his name. Yeah. Honderman? What's his yeah. last name? Hans Honderman, yeah. His whole purpose is to create eye contact. Mm -hmm. We were with him in, uh, in Holland, in North Holland, and he realized that typical intersections are very dangerous. So by changing the dynamic of the intersection, bringing the speeds down, and taking the lights out, and signs and stuff like that, he actually created eye contact. So he brought the whole intersection down to eye contact, where people would <laughs> imagine having eye contact with everyone at the intersection. You know, so he was, a, he was a, an activist for community, but also a professional. So that was very unusual. 
So I've got one last question that I ask everybody, which is to open up the imagination of whether it's the community that's participating or even yourself if you're trying to think differently. What's a prompt that you use that maybe throws people off kilter or gets them to shift that perspective? We show, we have these amazing images of before and after. And there's one image of this Soldiers and Sailors Monument in uh, Detroit. And in 1917, it was the center of Detroit. In 1999, it was surrounded by nothing. In 2005 or something, we had this square around it. We moved it. We put it in the center. It was the center of Detroit. It became the center of an empty Detroit. And now it's the center of a revised Detroit. And so that's fun. The other one, which is great, is in London. He had a whole on the banks of the Seine, a place called Gabriel's Wharf, he had a whole row of buildings that were the back of a building. So what he did is he painted the backs of the buildings to look like they were real buildings. And then at the bottom of them, he put these garage structures, and he put 30 businesses in there 40 years ago, and they're still functioning. And it was set up for local entrepreneurs, pay low rent, now come in and make their own place, and it became a square and a gathering place. And that was phenomenal. That was catalytic. So you show that, and people are just like, wow, those buildings were painted, and you got that? Yeah, I think that's key, not just showing what's possible, yeah. but also showing how simple yeah. it is. Yeah. These little accommodations yeah. that yeah. any person yeah. can take to yeah. completely transform yeah. a space. So, and so that's what Kathy and I are going to do, is we're going to build a vocabulary or a dictionary, whatever you want to call it, of those little places. Because Holly White, he said something at the end we found of one of his quotes. He says, I end in praise of small spaces. The multiplier effect is tremendous. It's not just the people uh, passing by and using them. It's, or it's about the people who know about that place and don't even have to be there. It sort of drives their reason for, for wanting to be in that place. And, and he said, said this at the end for places like that are right in front of our noses if we will look. So that's sort of the, the big message is it's there and it's possible and it's revolutionary, it's transformative and it can save the planet. I want to thank Fred Kent for taking the time to chat with me in between his many travels. Fred and his wife are currently busy expanding their mission into Placemaking X a network to help accelerate the work of transforming the spaces we live in into the places we love to live. This was episode three of our five-parter on designing wild bodies in space. There are currently two other conversations up on our podcast page right now, one with a dance choreographer and the other with an interactive narrative designer, with two more episodes upcoming. As always, I want to thank Brad Clymer for the theme music, and Lawrence Williams for producing this episode. I'm Romy Neme, and this is The Third Person. See you soon.